Anapanasati, this book is uh, a good place to go. There are copies in the library. So I've wanted to uh, go into certain aspects of what's called jhana practice, which is to develop. By the way, I'm not saying I was a very successful at that. Um, don't want to give any. I'm not saying I wasn't either, but I just don't want to give the wrong impression. Partly it's against the monastic discipline to claim states and attainments uh, that one hasn't accomplished. So I'm non-committal on what was accomplished. But I, I will admit that I went up there wanting to, to work on certain aspects of fairly refined states of samadhi or concentration. And at the same time, translating from a, the manual I, the manual I held up is what we call the beginner's manual. And then there's this big fat 500 page one, which is uh, not yet in print in English which has very rich material, which we call the teacher's manual. And I'm bit by bit translating that. Which leads me into what I, a few points I wanted to bring up here. Because there's the section I ended up translating or deals with some things that I've been talking about a lot over the years back in Thailand when I used to lead monthly meditation retreats, but also here in the States and in the Philippines and a few other places. There are some points that in retranslating this material, I, I clarified for myself some subtleties about something I've been doing, for doing and teaching for a long time. And it's a little embarrassing then to reread it and go, oh, you know, I'm kind of, I was a little fuzzy on that one, or, uh, oops, wasn't too clear on that. Not that it, it comes from the book, but the whole thing of what's, what I like about translating is to translate well, you have to read it and reread it and ponder it and practice with it to make sure you really get it, especially if you're you're translating something from the Buddha or a teacher who you love and respect you you don't want to you don't want to mess up so i wanted to start tonight by sharing some some things that i've reclarified for myself some of this may be new to some of you some of it may be old we'll see but what I'd like to start with is four quite old and traditional steps for what nowadays we might call working with the breath. And those of you who are familiar with Larry's book or other, other discussions of the various lessons or steps or contemplations of mindfulness with breathing, I'm not talking about those right now. Um, this is, I'll, I'll link it with that in a little bit. Uh, 
But when we start to bring attention to the breath, uh, or as ways for us to bring attention to the breath, I'd like to summarize four tried-and-true ways of doing that. (coughs) They're called measuring, um, connecting, contact point, and securing. I couldn't quite turn the third one into a nice ING phrase. You could call it contacting, pointing, or something. But uh, we'll worry about that in the final draft. Um, So I'd like to talk about these because um, I find these traditional formulations quite helpful for dealing with the different states of sleepiness, restlessness, sloppiness or laziness, which is in recent years a particular uh, hindrance of my own. Um, The thinking mind is calmed down, and so then it goes off into lazy, spacey mind. Um, And dealing with some of the, the... the different qualities of mind or the different minds that come to the the meditation experience, I find these various steps or what my teacher called methods of practice useful. So I'll, I'll try to summarize them for you. The first is measuring and which means measuring the breath. It's a way, all of these are ways of being mindful with the breathing in and out. And the first is called measuring. So you kind of measure the length of the breath, how deep and long or how short and shallow the breath is. And this is very useful when your mind is scattered, busy, distracted, worrying, planning, which it often is when we come from work or whatever, or we just had an argument with somebody or dealt with traffic. If we come to meditation and there's a lot going on, the mind is coarse. The mind is not really in ready to stay with a fairly subtle object, which the breathing itself becomes. So what can be helpful for many of us when the mind is busy, scattered, whatever, is to use a fairly crude way of paying attention to your breathing and measuring fits the bill. So what you can do is, one way to do this is called counting. You count as you breathe in. There are various ways to do that. I'll just share the one I prefer, but there are variations on these. So as one breathes in, one at a comfortable pace counts one, two, three, four, five. Now if your mind's real busy and it slips during those gaps, count a little faster, one, two, Count fast enough so there's no place 
there's no kind of space for the mind to run away. And then, but count slow enough so you're not just going one, two, three, and making things worse. So you count one, two, three, four, five, or whatever, till the inhalation is complete. Now, if it ends before you get to five, then try method two, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, And then as you breathe out, you count one, two, three, four, five. So that's kind of, you're using the counting to sort of estimate, which is another way of translating the Pali word. You're estimating or measuring the length of the breath, how long or how short it is. And then as you continue with this, hopefully things settle down, and that means the breath will lengthen a bit as it relaxes, as the mind calms down. So instead of counting to five, if the breath lengthens, you might be counting to six or seven or even more. Because the mind is active with the counting, it gives it more to do than just being with the breathing. So it's a lot easier to stay in the rough vicinity of the breath, which at times is the best we can do because the mind's you know, kind of a mess sometimes or, or even often. So we can use this as an initial way to pay attention to the breathing. A second variation on this is with or without, well, um, numbers or words, one measures the breath by going beginning, middle, end. Traditionally, beginning's the nose, middle's the center of the chest, and end is the belly, just below the navel. And then for the exhalation, you feel it's starting in the belly, move your attention to the center of the chest, and then as the breath finishes, you move awareness up to the nose. It's still a little active. This You're actively jumping from beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end, up and down, as the breath moves in, as the breath moves out. So it's still relatively active and coarse, which is appropriate when the mind is is crude, when it's busy and scattered and and not in a calm, refined state. If it helps, you can even say the little mantra in your head, beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end, which corresponds to counting one, two, three. So that's why either count to five or higher or just do this this threefold thing. Or some just go beginning, end, and kind of catch your breath at the nose, catch it at the end, catch it in the belly, then back up to the nose. I'm not saying you have to do it this way, but these are some traditional approaches that can be effective at times. They're not appropriate, though, all the time because eventually things start to settle down. 
And this cruder, more active, or even jumpy way of paying attention to the breath becomes um, a distraction. When physically, mentally, we're ready to settle more, to soften, relax, calm down, then drop the measuring if you were doing it. And you might want to try the second stage of this, these methods, which is called connecting. Connecting sort of takes the three points I just mentioned, and instead of jumping, you turn it into a flow. Now, the breath is flowing in and out in its own way. This isn't the flow of the breath itself, but the flow of the mind watching the breath. So it's, a still, it's still a bit active. The mind is moving in and out between the nose tip and the belly, uh, the point just below the, the navel. And so as you're breathing in, let the mind f- pick up the be- inhalation in the nose and then flow inward, flow down through the chest into the belly. It doesn't mean you have to feel every little sensation along the way, but the mind flows in and out, which itself is a kind of soothing rhythm which, which can help to settle things down. But it, as I just said, it's a bit active. So it's appropriate when the mind is not yet ready to really settle. It's still kind of intermediate. It's more of a in the process, process of settling down is where this can be very useful. And so you, you follow the breath in and out. And it's often called following or tracking. You track the breath in and out. At this stage, it's better to drop any counting or verbalizations. That, again, is a more active technique, which is appropriate at times, but for this more gentle and soothing following in and out, it's better to drop the active counting and stuff. So those are two. Now at some point, hopefully, sooner or later, some days, or things calm down, the body relaxes, there's a kind of softening of the tensions, and things are ready to settle. Then we can move to a third stage, which is called the contacting point or uh, which means the mind settles at a single point somewhere along the path of the breath and traditionally that's it's well almost without exception somewhere near the tip of the nose is recommended Those of you who are used to watching at the abdomen, that applies more to the previous two two stages. 
But if the mind wants to really settle in a refined way, the abdomen's kind of broad and diffuse. Whereas the nose is preferred because it's, well, it's a little smaller than than the belly. So you have a more precise area that you're, you're paying attention to. So one takes somewhere near the tip of the nose. It might be on the upper lip, just below the nose. Wherever you feel the inhalation and exhalation most clearly, that becomes the place where you focus. Now here there's a, a subtle shift. This is one of the points I kind of spaced out on for years that, oh, now I've, I think I got it. Um, that the first two ex- ways of contemplating the breath that I've mentioned, it's with the breath. Now what we call breath is the air going in and out and the sensations of the chest rising and falling, the belly moving, and maybe you feeling air in the nose and different places. So it's all touch sensations that accompany the flowing in and out of the breath. But when things get calmer and calmer, as the body relaxes and the breath gets more and more quiet and there's more stillness and the mind is ready to settle, things are much more subtle. And so we drop the, the cruder ways that I've already talked about and we come to one point, this what's called the contact point. And here, we don't really focus on the breath itself, but we focus on a little patch of skin in your nose. And uh, by the way, if you feel it here when the breath's going in and a little higher up when it's coming out, just average the two and don't, you know, don't worry about any little differences or whether it's more on the left or the right. Just approximately is good enough. But a fairly, you know, it's a little place of touch somewhere near the tip of the nose, usually inside. And that's where you focus. Now, this is very useful because as the breath becomes more peaceful, there are times you don't feel it. And then people worry, oh, where's my breath? Or what do I pay attention to now? I can't feel my breath. Well, you don't have to worry about that question. Just come back to that point. And as, especially as you get more and more familiar with it, it's just, it's always in the same place. And you get used to it. You cultivate that point. And so even if you don't feel the breath much or at all, focus on that point. Now, if the mind's still jumpy and thinking and worrying or whatever, you can't do this very well. You're maybe bouncing, you know, off of the point. You know, you go off and then you try to come back. For me, if the mind's that busy, I do the, the first two of these methods. But when it's ready, the mind can settle and it shuts up. The, the thinking stops. It doesn't have to stop completely. 
but um, I usually wait till that point where it's ready to really just stick at this point. And so that's a third in these series of, of methods. The fourth, which um, I'm going to go into briefly, although I could extend this into a couple more hours of uh, stuff, is called securing. So once the mind is settled here, then the mind kind of gathers itself and makes the awareness more and more secure and limited to this point. At first, awareness is broader, more aware of the body, you know, the whole body, for example. But the fourth stage is when the mind's well anchored at the nose tip, then it collects, gathers itself together into more and more of a point or what's often called one-pointedness, one a kakata. This is the, the fourth stage. Some of you may have heard of uh, the term nimitta, and depending how much you're into some of the meditation debates going on, this is one of the subjects of debate these days, what this word nimitta means. It's often translated image, and this has led people to think that it's always a kind of visual thing. But in in rereading and revisiting some of the traditional material on this, it, it doesn't really mean image. In this case, it means, um, although I think in this book, which I translated... I think I translated it as image, so uh, not sure what we're going to do about future revisions. But now, and it may change again next year, but now I'm preferring the word sign. Anyway, what you call it doesn't really matter. But any of you who have heard about and are wondering about this word nimita, and if you hadn't, haven't heard about it, don't worry about it, um, but here, nimita or sign refers to the sense of touch at this point. It doesn't have to be a picture. And those of you who want to deepen samadhi or concentration or the collectedness of mind, you use this nimita where you feel the touch of the breath in the nose. So that's something I wanted to uh, go into, partly to make up for any errors in my previous translations. And also, um, I don't know how much this kind of thing gets talked about so I thought it might be useful to bring up. So these are four traditional steps or methods of um, getting into the breathing. And if I would encourage you to try them out 
and find out when each of them is appropriate for you and make use of them to the degree that they're, they're helpful for you. There are stages of getting into the breathing and the series that I've outlined also there by going through the four there's a natural progression to a more refined, subtle, focused, concentrated mind. Now, if you want to take that concentration even further, then you get into what's called jhana practice, um, which is not necessary, but it, it has its value. The last thing I'd like to say on on this subject is for those of you who are familiar with the the Buddha's discourse on anapanasati or mindfulness with breathing where there are 16 objects or what I call lessons what some people call contemplations mentioned by the Buddha I'd like to uh, kind of line up these four stages I just mentioned with some of these lessons. The, the first of the stages I just mentioned, measuring, is appropriate for the first two lessons of mindfulness with breathing, which is getting to know the long breathing and getting to know the short breathing. Um, that measuring and counting is a good a good way to start to assess how short, how long your breath is and then paying attention to how it's long or how it's short and other qualities or characteristics of the breath associated with that. The second method, connecting, is good for those first two lessons getting to know the long breathing, getting to know the short breathing. And it's also good for the third lesson, which is experiencing um, all the different sort of relationships between breathing and body. The third and fourth stages or methods I just mentioned um, contacting at this point and then gathering, those are very good for the fourth lesson, which is calming the breathing. The, the actual Pali words mean calming the body conditioner. So by calming the breathing, one calms the body, and in the process, the mind calms and settles. So focusing at a fairly refined point can do a very good job of calming the breathing. And then if you wish to pursue the other lessons or contemplations about feelings, mind, and dhamma, you can just stay right there at that point in the nose. Once one has a good anchor there, then everything happens right there in your nose, um, sort of. 
I mean, everything in terms of anapanasati. Your mind is there, body is there, breathing is there, feelings are there, and dhamma is there. The second thing I thought I'd bring up tonight uh, is a bit heretical in certain Vipassana circles. Um, And so uh, please forgive me for my apostasy or whatever sins I may commit. I'm going to talk about controlling the breathing. Uh, I hear from various people that there's uh, warnings and instructions to never control the breathing. Well, I'm going to disagree with that. Um, First, I'd like to distinguish between two kinds of controlling the breathing. If, If I put it crudely, there's the stupid way and the smart way. Uh, The stupid way, I don't recommend. Uh, The smart way, though, has benefits. A a more Buddhist way to put it, there's the skillful way and the uh, unskillful way. So my heresy is that uh, controlling the breathing isn't always bad, wrong, or inappropriate. If we control the breathing in a really kind of overt, um, grasping, dominating, stupid way, it's, it's not of much use. But there are more appropriate, balanced, relaxed ways that still involve some control of the breathing that are actually quite useful. And so what I want to put out is that there are times and ways of controlling the breathing where it it might be good for you. There are other times where just leave it, you know, just be aware of it as it is, if you can. The trick is... Uh, it's real easy to say, just be aware of the breathing as it is, but not many people can actually do that. So actually, my opinion is, if we tell people never control the breathing, we're being very cruel because we're telling them to do something that most people can't do. Until the mind is calm enough and subtle enough to just experience but most of the time, the mind's, um, it's, uh, it's still in its kind of ego modes. And when mind is in an ego mode, mind controls. That's what ego is. It's a, a mechanism to manipulate the world to get what we want. That's one of the things the whole ego structure does. So anyway, back to skillful controlling of the breathing.
there's a, there are ways of breathing that are deep, relaxed, calm, full, peaceful, invigorating, happy, healthy, that um, are very good for, for meditation. One, they're healthy. So when we meditate, we, we actually gain energy. Two, it feels good. So meditation isn't such a strain or a chore. More important, they're strong, calm, and, and stable. So with these kinds of breathing, it's much easier for the mind to stop to stop thinking, to stop reacting, and just sit. In a way, it's not just the body that just sits, but the mind can stop and sit still. This is much easier when the breathing is coming from the hara, or what the Chinese call the dantian, which is the area below the navel. Now, the controlling part is when you're really there, there's no control anymore. The controlling is getting there because most of us, much of the time, don't breathe deep, full, relaxed belly breathing. Many people in our modern, stressed out, busy, kind of head-tripping world have fairly tense and shallow breathing. So the reason I, I like to bring up skillful control of the breath is to get from breathing that's relatively stuck in the chest, kind of constricted, you know, all those muscles are kind of tight, maybe there's tension in the solar plexus, to learn how to relax the whole chest area, including the the corresponding part in back, relax the solar plexus, relax the belly, so the breath can drop all the way down. And as it drops, it gets calmer, it's more relaxed, and you find a real strength down there. And when the breathing is coming from there, it's a lot easier for the mind to stop, including stop controlling. It's very beneficial, so I encourage people to, some of the time, not all the time, uh, don't get obsessed with this, don't you know, do it too much, but make some effort to deepen the breathing. The way I like to see it um, is not in a forceful, pushy way, not that kind of control, but still there's some intention going into the breath to deepen it, but not just deepen, relax. If you force it deep, things get tighter. But if the deepening is a kind of massaging, which is the metaphor I like, 
using the breath to massage the tightness, tension, stuckness inside. You know, and there might be worries or fears or irritation or whatever emotional stuff's going on. Use the breath to kind of massage through that little by little. It's a slow, gradual process. But I've found it very useful that part of most sittings, and usually towards the beginning, putting some effort into massaging the breath deeper and deeper until it really can drop down and breathe in a deep, relaxed um, belly way. Now, um, it occurs to me some of us like to watch our thoughts. Um, If you do and you're afraid you won't have enough of thoughts, then just keep your breath kind of shallow and in the chest. It's, it's, It's anxiety breathing. And so that'll keep the mind busy. Um, So some people are afraid of the mind stopping. So if you are, don't breathe from your belly. Um, Because it's much easier for the mind to shut up when the breathing's from down there. But if you've had enough of all that noise and uh, commotion up there, you might want to get to know the the deep belly breathing. I'll conclude um, with one last point, which my uh, was a phrase my teacher liked to use. He spoke of breathing without a breather. And this is kind of the, the transition into the stuff I'll be saying about emptiness, most of which will come next week. But this is about the attitude we bring, bring to meditation. This applies to the things I've been saying or anything else we might do in mindfulness with breathing. If... If there's a breather, a me, there's a fairly thick ego that's doing the breathing, and it's controlling. Um, The more we can soften that, or at least kind of as a little koan in the back of your mind, breathing without a breather, how, how does one do that? This is something I'd like to to leave with you, um, just to let tumble around in there and make some sense, whatever sense of it, or nonsense that that you like. So um, I'll close now, and usually 8.30 is the time we let people go. Or should I... So I'll take a few questions now, if there are questions or comments, and then at 8.30 we'll allow those who need to go home to do so. So.
you speak in a little bit more detail about the difference between your third and your fourth stages of your first point, namely the difference between what you call finding the contact point and then gathering? Mm -hmm. uh, you said something about uh, the first stage was more about just bring, continuing to bring your awareness back to that particular spot, whereas in the, that was the third stage, whereas in the fourth stage, something else was happening. I wasn't quite sure of the distinction. Yeah. Yeah, the, the distinction's partly in all the details I left out of the fourth one. But, um, but the third one is... I maybe use the metaphor of a zoom lens. So in the third one, the contacting, you haven't zoomed in so much yet. You've zoomed in a bit because you're focused on the nose, but awareness might still be somewhat wide. And the point is to keep awareness centered on the nose. So you don't, you're, you're coming back a bit, but for the most part you're not going off. The mind isn't going off. It's just staying around this point. The old metaphor of the calf with the rope around its neck and the stake well, the stake is put in here and the rope is mindfulness and the calf is the mind. And now the calf is its still wandering a bit, but it's wandering around here. And it's not pulling the stake out and running away, looking for more interesting grass somewhere. Whereas stage four is where the calf curls up around the stake and goes to sleep. We're not supposed to go to sleep, but... That's where the metaphor ends. Um, so four is then once, once the mind is staying in this area, then is when the, it focuses more and more precisely. And that's where you go f at some point, the, the sign or nimitta of the, that point of touch can create what's called a, a counterpart sign. Oh, wait, that's the counterpart. I, I get the poly words. Um, the mind can create a kind of... I'm not sure how to put it. Is it a sense impression of some sort? Uh, well, not really. The point of touch is a sense impression. But what can happen is when there's enough concentration there, the mind can create something else. It's created by the mind. And the mind then really focuses on that. That can be, and here's where there's a lot of debate, whether that is always a kind of little picture, like a point of light or a moon or a wisp of smoke, or... Can it be tactile? And I, I don't have an opinion on that yet. <laughs> so, so anyway, those are, and then the whole details of kind of working with that mind-generated sign and taking that into jhana. That's... <coughs>
fewer, the fewer the better. <laughs> um, and there's, this is another area where there's debate what jhana is. But, so I should define it the way I understand it. Jhana is a state of one-pointedness where the mind is so focused on one thing that it's pretty much not aware of the other senses. And so in jhana, one doesn't hear the cars go by, one's body awareness drops away, and there's, and you're not on something out there, it's something internal, like what I just talked about, the mind, this mind-generated sign, it's in the mind, and the mind isn't anywhere. It's kind of working here at the nose, but at some point it can just be on that mind-generated sign. And so there's no awareness or attention going to the other senses. In this case, just the mind sense. And that state has various qualities which are called the jhana factors. I, I won't go into that. But so jhana is this capacity of the mind to really pull itself together with a level of strength and subtlety because this is both very calm and very strong and it's joyful, it's peaceful. Um, the mind can pull it together, it, itself together in that way for various purposes. Uh, in the bigger scheme of Buddhist practice, the purpose of that is to to sort of exercise the samadhi so the mind is in the best possible shape for vipassana. The mind that, and another debate is that, can one experience, can one have what the Buddha called vipassana, which is a little different than the way some Americans talk about vipassana, but Originally, vipassana is direct, nonverbal experience of impermanence. And from there into the inherent dukkha, kind of unsatisfactory quality of changing things and then their selflessness. Some say that that can happen in jhana and some say it can't. Um, following my teacher, I believe... Vipassana, real Vipassana doesn't happen in jhana itself. But traditional literature speaks of when the mind exits that, it's like it's refreshed. It's like waking up from a good nap or um, you know, really refreshed and peaceful, no tension, and yet the mind is fully sharp, alert, all its powers are there, and it can focus very well. That's the mind that's most most ripe for Vipassana. Um, so that's in the scheme of Buddhist practice, that's the, val- the main value of jhana. Um, but it's various forms of uh, traditional healing also draw on that, that level of concentration. And and sometimes psychic powers develop from it, which, um, 
which if they happen on their own can be okay. If, if you go after them, they tend to lead to lots of confusion. Um, it's 8.30. So. It's 8.30, so um, those who have buses, trains, or children and dogs and partners and what have you are free to go. And those who like want to remain will talk for another 25 minutes. Good night. Not, it's never described in that way mm-hmm. and not very likely. It's pretty hard to move around in jhana. Oh. Like you wouldn't see the car coming. <laughs> so, my understanding of jhana, there are some people who are using jhana to describe mental states in which you can see the car or you can hear the baby crying or whatever. But the way I understand jhana, it's not a good state for functioning, you know, in the the world. That state, uh, is that the state that um, some saints or uh, or people who... uh, fall into that state and then they stop doing what they're doing and they just end up staying there like uh, Amachi and other people and I heard that for example this woman or Anandama I don't remember which one she was uh, cooking and she would fall in that state and then stop and then her family would scold her or beat her to get her back to the cooking job Mm-hmm. And she would possibly fall into that. I'm reluctant to the, use the word fall into it, mm-hmm. be, at least because most people, you, you don't fall into it. The mind has to put a certain kind of effort into it. Um, now, it's possible some people who've been there so often that. Well, there are people like my teacher who had a kind of natural facility for for this sort of thing. So it happened a lot easier than it does for most of us. Now, for some of those people who then are, then they develop it. Easier doesn't mean it just happens. It's, um, I still believe 
they develop it. And maybe if they're really familiar, then their mind can go there real quick. But if they're cooking and their mind went there, that would be kind of careless. So um, I'm, I'm not, I haven't paid that much attention to the kind of story you're talking about. And I'm also a little reluctant to get into them because these tend to become kind of leg, you know, meditator legends and a bit of hagiography. So, and you know, I don't really know, and maybe I should just say I don't really know what happened to him. But um, so it could be that it's Jana, or I remember one discussion I had with my teacher about a novice in northern Thailand who was at one point famous for being very successful at a certain well-known meditation technique in which he could um, stop. It's a rough translation of the Thai word. And supposedly he went into some state that in this meditation teaching was considered very exalted. And he could stop in that state where he seemed to have no outer awareness whatsoever. And I guess afterwards he also couldn't, there wasn't any inner awareness. There's nothing that he could report of the internal experience. Well, in this certain meditation circles, which were quite big, at that time, this guy was put on a pedestal. But um, over the next year or two, he started to indulge in more and more destructive behavior. Now, according to the s- scriptures, the s- okay, this medi- these meditation groups were labeling what this guy was experienced as what can be translated cessation, niroda samapati, which is often very close to the experience of complete liberation. And so what was happening to this guy was being associated with niroda samapati, which means, according to Theravada theory, the defilements are getting cleaned out and the unconscious habits and tendencies or karmic formations, whatever we call them, were getting cleaned out. Well, not in this guy. Um, His behavior deteriorated, he got abusive, he started stealing from the monastery. and uh, So my Ajahn Buddhadasa's, and then he gave me another example when we were talking about there was a woman who came to him once complaining. Whenever she meditated, she would just black out. And those groups had told her that, oh, great, you know, that's, that's cessation. That's wonderful. But she would try to meditate and she would just black out. And it started to scare her more and more. And uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa's opinion uh, was that In her case, it was some kind of anomaly of the nervous system where it would just kind of turn off or something because this this woman was a nice, good person, but she wasn't showing signs 
or she couldn't report deep insights. So I, I, I think there's a tendency in traditional Buddhist countries where they look for kind of the superficial signs of, ex, of attainments because there's, there's a desire to have attainments where I feel the, the better approach is to look for the results that are supposed to follow those attainments. And if the results aren't there, then don't, don't cling to the attainment. So anyway, what you're talking about, I don't know. But if it's happening in people who, whatever they happen to them, in coming back to kind of normal, semi-normal waking consciousness, they're getting insight into how mind, what mind is, and how mind, you know, creates the illusion of permanence. And then when we see through that illusion, if that's happening, then then something, I think something significant's happening. The actual experience I think is kind of a mixed bag you and um, whether it's different than these two examples I gave or kind of the same but some people were able to learn something from it and other people weren't I don't I don't know It's Niroda, but not Niroda Samapati. Okay. Um, that's helpful. Um, also, that, that cessation then that's in the awareness of breathing, um, if, if, if an object stops, it's still there, but if a process stops or a flame stops, it's gone. What's your opinion of, of which that cessation is going Right. I like, okay, the, the common word here is Niroda which appears in the third noble truth, the Niroda of Dukkha. And it appears as, I think it's the ninth, in some lists, the jhanas, there are four form jhanas and four formless jhanas, that's eight. And then there's Niroda Samapati. Or sometimes what I believe to be the same thing, it's called the Niroda of perception and feeling. So there's some minimal level of consciousness, but no feeling and no perception. So there's not a whole lot going on in that. Um, And uh, please don't ask me to describe it in detail. So that's another use of Niroda, and then in the 15th lesson of Anapanasati, it's Nirota Nubatsi, um, contemplating Niroda. Now, a common translation of Niroda is cessation. I prefer quenching, the quenching of dukkha, because 
partly the quest the way you were phrasing the question if my throat is thirsty and I have a glass of nice fresh water the thirst is quenched but the throat is still there and I'm not dead I hope um, whereas some people when they talk about cessation it's like well it's everything's finished and gone and to me this is a major point because a certain traditional interpretation of Theravada Buddhism is cessation means you die and don't get reborn. And some people take that to be the goal of Buddha's practice, that I'm going to cease. Um, That to me is neither appealing nor does it seem to fit what the Buddha was teaching, in my um, opinion. So... So I think this, this is an important term to work out. In the context of Niroda Samapati, it does mean certain things stop. In this case, um, this usual sense activity and maybe only remains the, the inner mind sense and there's no feeling, no sensation. Um, no feeling or sensation, no perception. If there's no perception, there's no thought, no emotion, none of that more complex stuff. There's just a minimal level of consciousness. And what kind of awareness that is, I, I, I'm not going to try to explain because I'm not in a position to do that. So cessation does mean that things cease. The question is, do they cease forever? Like in Niroda Samapati, after a while, those mental functions can come back. Um, Otherwise, the Buddha stopped thinking, and he gave all those discourses without thinking, which I don't think is the case. In the case of the 15th lesson of Anapanasati, same word Niroda, but not Niroda Samapati, and not Niroda or quenching of feeling and perception. But the way um, I understand it, it's the quenching of clinging and reactivity. Because it's it's preceded by lessons 13 and 14. 14 is the fading away of attachment. And 15 is the ending of attachment. When there's no attachment, there's no greed, hatred, delusion. There, the mind was already had good enough samadhi, so there's none of the hindrances. So the quenching is the quenching of both present and habitual reactivity towards the object being contemplated, say the breathing or states of mind. So the breathing is experienced without any, without any sense of clinging to it as me or mine. There's no identification. And so if something funny were to happen to the breath, there would be no reactivity. 
And this is the level where there's really no, no control, no egoistic control, at least. Or if it would be other things, um, our health, you know, all the reactivity that goes into our health, fears and worries, is gone. It's cooled. So quenched and cooled. Um, so certain things can remain, but they're no longer, by cooled or quenched, they're no longer a source of suffering. There's, there's no more reactivity around them. That's, that's how I understand it. Let's see. Yeah, I think you were next, and then back there. Makes a lot of sense to me because it, you know, when you describe it as anxiety in the chest, and that allows a shorter breath. Like, say, I'm sitting at work or anywhere, and something, you know, now is awareness, you know, senses that there's an anxiety going on, and the first thing is trying to push it away and then trying to be with it. In situations like that, where I just maybe take a few, at times I've wanted to try to take a few seconds and just try to be with my breathing or whatever, just to allow myself to be aware of what's happening. I'm guessing you don't. You wouldn't recommend it there, would you? you oh, I would. You I would. do it all the time. Because I, I you're you're still going to be with that anxiety for a while. Right. But uh, actually, if the breathing deepens, it's easier to be with the anxiety. The tighter and ten- more tense you're breathing, the more you're in the anxiety, uh-huh. and going to be reacting, and you're not liking it. And so when you can relax some more, help using the breath or whatever, so you relax more, you, you kind of put more of a container, a soft holding space for the anxiety. So you actually can see it more clearly. And, and you don't really have to stay there for 20 minutes just to experience anxiety. Because... The whole thing about in, if you really see anxiety, you know, that's enough. You don't have to think about it. So a lot of it we're just kind of, or for me, it's more irritation, annoyance, anger. You know, you know, you can stew in it for hours. It doesn't mean you saw it. So the thing is to have the right space. So, I mean, you don't want to be constant. You don't want to use the breath just to, push it away and push it away. But if you're just softening around it, you're still with it. And I think one actually has a better chance to be clear with it. And then when you're clear, you can drop it and be happy again for a few seconds (laughs) or minutes. Okay, back there and then over here. Um, well, samadhi is the sixth 
samadhi as a factor of awakening is the sixth of the seven, but not jhana. But jhana is is a samadhi thing. Um, what I would say that those who can develop the jhanas or at least approximate them have a better chance of generating the kind of samadhi that's called factor of awakening. Jhana is not a factor of awakening, but the right kind of one-pointedness along with the other factors, that's, that's useful. But I don't think, because the factors of awakening describe the mind that can be one-pointed on in contemplation, and it's the contemplation that's more and more deeply seeing impermanence and selflessness and letting go, which, in my understanding, doesn't happen in jhana. So jhana is kind of preparatory work to to help that kind of samadhi occur. Um, no, I haven't. I I got tired of reading Buddhist books about two years ago, <laughs> so I I still read the scriptures, but I don't read as many books because it kind of seems like they keep saying the same things over and over. I'm I'm actually getting back into reading more now, but anyway, uh, the two that come to mind, which I have not read anywhere near completely are the old classic, the Vasudhi Maga, or The Path of Purity, which is not my favorite book. I think it's kind of stilted and it's got a lot of unnecessary junk, but it's got some very useful stuff. And if you want to hear about lots of different kinds of Theravada, what's considered Theravada meditation, you can find it in there. Though interestingly, a lot of it's stuff the Buddha hardly ever talked about. And the scheme that Buddha Gosa used starts with the kasina, which is a kind of meditation where you you basically have some visual disc, like a, a, a disc of yellow clay that you focus on. The Buddha hardly ever talked about these things, but Buddha Gosa goes on for 50 pages and uses that as the paradigm. Um, I, I take anapanasati as the paradigm. Um, a second one, I can't quite remember the name, but there was a pretty sure Sri Lankan monk, something like Manual of Buddhist Meditation. I've got it somewhere in my library. I assume there's a copy. I'm pretty sure I've seen a copy in the library here. It's about 300-something pages, and I've only looked through it, but it seems to be an over... I think this monk did a PhD in Japan or someplace, and this was his thesis. 
but it seems to be an overview and summary of all the different forms of meditation discussed in Theravada tradition. That would be my first recommendation if I could remember the title. <laughs> when you, you talked before about something that really caught my attention, which was really seeing an hindrance. You said, well, that doesn't mean that you're really seeing it. So that's, that's really an interesting concept. How do you know when you're really seeing a hindrance? Is it when you start to see its disintegration? Kind, well, no, not when you've really seen it, it's gone. Um, I mean, that's my way of talking. But uh, let's, uh, maybe a more helpful way to put it is um, the more you see it, the more you're in it or, you know, spinning and reacting to it. But you're still somewhat in it as long as it's still there. That's why when I say when you really see it with real clarity, it goes away. Because there's no more reacting. And so it, does it, it does goes. Does it sometimes go away like that? Or does mm-hmm. it sometimes go away like disintegrating? Probably both. Yeah. Yeah. Probably both. Or sometimes it blinks in and out for oh, a while. That I haven't seen. Okay. Well, you know, kind of your mind like... Like sloth, your mind might kind of come together and it brightens up for a bit and the laziness, it's the mind, there's still a little dullness but not much and then it starts to blur and space out, you know, and then comes together and then until, you know, and then it, then it stays pretty clear and alert for a while. Um, so the more one sees it, and seeing has two levels. There's kind of seeing it in terms of its qualities. Like take um, take doubt. What is doubt? And what what are the sort of qualities of the doubting mind? And then the higher level of seeing is to see the impermanence of that mind state. And then when we really see that, it's it's gone. So, and again, if, see, the hindrances are obstacles to samadhi. So the more the mind is seeing something, that means, tends to mean the more the mind is focused. So if it focuses enough, this, the hindrance goes away. Mm-hmm. But, so it's, but it's kind of, there's a point where it's, the mind is focusing where there can be some pretty clear insight into the nature of it. And before that, you know, at some point you're just kind of swimming in it. And then you're, you're swimming, but your head's kind of above water now. And so you kind of, you know you're swimming in it. And you, so you get more of a sense of what's going on. And that clarifies more and more. And as it's clarifying, the mind is more calm and focused. And then so it, at some point, goes away. Um, 
I didn't quite put it the way you put it, but I did mention, I just mentioned a slew of things at the beginning, many of which corresponded to some of the hindrances. But I, I didn't mean to imply that, you know, of those four, that this one's good for that hindrance. Because the the antidotes to the hindrances are work differently. So I guess let me rephrase that. Is there, do, have you found that there is a method for counteracting sleepiness in one of the ways of bringing attention to breathing? Sort of. Um, well, and I think this varies a lot from person to person, but in my case, when I usually start meditating, I feel kind of tight and there's tension and I'm uncomfortable. So the deepening of the breath and just following in and out lets, helps me to settle down and relax and some of the tension starts to go, to, go away. If that happens enough that I actually start to get comfortable, then my mind gets lazy because, oh, this, is, this feels good. I'll just kind of sit here and enjoy it and space out. <laughs> so, and if I try to focus on my belly, and I'm pretty sure this is not the case for everyone, but for some of us, if I focus on my belly, I go to sleep. I've never done the, the Mahasi rise and fall the abdomen approach. I, I follow in and out, but I don't, sometimes I stay down here for five, ten minutes. But if I stay down here and get calm, I go to sleep. So what I'm getting better at is things have become calm and quiet. And then I remember, okay, get up to the nose. Because to stay alert, I need, and this may not be for everybody, but I, I need a clear, a more precise object. Otherwise, I just kind of get lost. The belly is kind of a kind of dark, big space, energetically. So it's it's real easy for me to just get in there like in the womb and just... So, so I come up to this contacting point. Now, I think some people don't want to come there too quick because for some it's for some because it's up here where they it feels like a lot of the thinking goes on some people if they come to this point too quickly they get back into their head and their thinking but for me the the problem is more just getting lost in the kind of primordial half awake soup of Idiot bliss. <laughs> I want to talk briefly about the, the belly and when, I'm, when I focus on the belly when I'm in a fairly calm state in meditation, uh, there, a lot of heat ends up uh, coming up and there's a lot of, and I can almost sort of expand the heat when it's there and I know I'm wondering, I, I tend to get lost in it and it's kind of neat and it feels good. And so it's kind of a warm... Yeah, it's a good Glowing and then it's, it's energetic too, and, and even now as I'm thinking about it, I can sort of feel like generating some heat in the belly. And I'm just wondering, is it something worth focusing on, or is it more of a distraction? 
don't focus on it, but you don't have to ignore it. It's a byproduct. Treat it as kind of a byproduct. But, and this is a general thing with that applies to other byproducts. If it feels, if it's basically healthy, it feels good, um, don't worry about it. But if you get into it, it's going to distract you from the the practice we're doing. Um, the belly in in Chinese systems, you know, the chi is stored down here in the dantian. So when we find that strength, which you you might feel, some people feel is heat or warmth, and just let that kind of radiate through the body. And which will tend to both invigorate and relax the body, and then it's easier to to calm down. At some point, that will sort of um, stabilize. And but you've got this kind of glowing energy. the The task there is to channel it, like here. Whereas if you're in, if you're into the the sense that kind of warm feeling mm-hmm. and the same applies to the pleasure of it right. yeah that well then you're getting into that and you're not you don't really have an object anymore you're just kind of enjoying yeah. so come back to a, a more skillful object but you don't have to suppress that stuff I think different people due to habits or even physiognomy some when some of that stuff comes up it can there can be some weird experiences shaking and but over time it it kind of mellows and once it kind of spreads out and you know it's, it's not a problem and it feels good it's healthy so we're getting the time signal which is helpful um, so we're going to close the talk and question stuff and there will be tea and maybe more discussion downstairs so hope uh, we did something meritorious and beneficial tonight and that we can uh, take that out into a society that's hurting really bad and taking its hurts out against the rest of the world. So let's all um, heal ourselves and then try to be forces of peace and wisdom and compassion out there in uh, crazy America. (laughs) Or whatever John Kabat-Zinn is going to talk about. (laughs) Maybe I'll see some of you next week. Some places they do that.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.